You are now listening to Macro Hello and welcome to Macrodose Extra, where we go in-depth with some of the most interesting thinkers from the worlds of economics and ecology. This week, I was talking to Cecilia Rickup, who is lecturer in international political economy at City University in London. Cecilia's research focuses on the political economy of technology, and her last book, Capitalism, Power and Innovation, describes the emergence of what she calls intellectual monopoly capitalism as giant tech companies come to dominate our economic life. She summarised some of her arguments in a recent piece for the New Left Review, titled Capitalism as Usual, which challenges some other recent accounts by economists like Cedric Duran and Yanis Varoufakis, who argue that we're moving out of capitalism altogether and into something they call techno-feudalism. I wanted to start by asking her about this idea and why she argues that, despite all the changes in the economy, it is still best to describe us as living under a form of capitalism rather than a new social formation. So basically, let me say that I share part of the concerns and the ways in which, uh, in particular, Cédric Durand analyzes uh, what's going on in global capitalism, not only with big tech companies, but more generally, one thing that we have in common is the focus on leading corporations concentrating in tangible assets and how that underpins their power. However, I think we have a different take in terms of how to call this and how to think about it. For me, it's still capitalism. It's certainly not capitalism as usual. Uh, Capitalism is constantly evolving, mutating, but perhaps it's because I come from a developing country. But for me, rents, which is typically one of the things that are associated with feudalism and why a lot of people speak about techno-feudalism because of the rise and importance of intangibles and intellectual rents, therefore, or innovation rents, Well, actually, rents have always been around. It's not something that was vanishing at the beginning of capitalism and eventually disappeared. In developing countries, land rent, or from a more Marxist perspective called ground rents, they are crucial for understanding capital accumulation, for instance. So for me, it's not about thinking if Uh, in terms of going backwards to a different uh, mode of organizing production where things were worse. And now once we fix that, capitalism will be okay. It's about how capitalism intrinsic contradictions have led us to where we are now and how we can think of producing a new form of living that is beneficial not only for humans, but also for nature and species in general. So, so what do you think that change consists in then? If you wanted to describe how this is, how the system has evolved, what, what's the key elements of this? So I usually describe it as intellectual monopoly capitalism. And although there are many changes that occurred, let's say, in the last 30 years, and in the particular in the case of digital technologies, we've seen an acceleration of all this process. It's kind of a a slowly moving transformation. And we can even trace it back, for instance, to moments like the late 19th century, when we see this first detachment between the producer of knowledge and the owner of knowledge. What happened was that workers, employees were before, of course, like you develop new knowledge in your workplace and then you go and work somewhere else and you cannot leave your brain in the first place where you were working. Uh, However, by the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, what we've seen is the emergence of different business practices and eventually new laws, in particular this idea of trade secret that now is commonly accepted that the knowledge you produce in your workplace does not belong to you, belongs to the company. And this is kind of a first moment where we can clearly see that 
it matters a lot distinguishing between who produces knowledge and who can profit from it. And if we just fast forward so that I don't give a like whole historical detail of what happened, if we fast forward to the last couple of decades, we've seen a process where this distinction became more important for understanding capital accumulation with a lot of also of regulatory and institutional transformations, like, for instance, the strengthening of intellectual property rights, but also with an acceleration of the innovation process itself. And there, and this is where digital technologies become so important, because if you have an algorithm that becomes better, the more data it processes, and then that algorithm is providing us a search engine that everybody uses around the world, We are constantly contributing with our searches to make that algorithm better. Therefore, the innovation accelerates and takes place all the time. And the same company that won once the innovation race will win it again and again and again. But let me insist on this. The knowledge that underpins it, not only the searches, not only the data, which we know it's produced globally by every human being using the internet these days, but also the knowledge is co-produced by many. So one thing that for me is key to, to show the difference is that Globalization is not only about the globalization of production of things, but also globalization of the production of ideas. However, what we don't see is a globalization of the associated wealth that is created by producing new things that in principle should be good for everyone, but end up being for the profit of a few companies. Okay. I mean, I want to just um, pick up on that because potentially what you're describing could could sound quite positive. If If you're somebody like Joseph Schumpeter, and he had a theory of innovation which said, okay, it creates monopolies, but this is good because then we get more stuff out of the side of it. I mean, this would be a justification for, for Google running yeah, basically a completely dominant search engine. It gets better the more we put into it, and that's good for everybody because now we have a really good search engine. So, so potentially what you're describing actually sounds positive in stark contrast to talking about it as techno-feudalism. Well, in principle, it could sound like positive, but actually it's not only about the appropriation of knowledge produced by everyone, and we could think it from a moral perspective, like we're all producing, but only a few profit, and that's wrong. But also from an economic perspective, the fact that knowledge ends up being enclosed limits its spillovers. Knowledge, unlike every other product of of human labor, has a capacity that is not only that is what economists would call non-rival. Actually, when we consume knowledge, we expand knowledge. So the more people can consume knowledge, the more knowledge we will be creating. And when access to knowledge is curtailed, all this is limited. So underlying this idea of Schumpeter and others, like we need to cope with monopolies because they will generate an ultimate good, What you have is this idea of innovation leading to economic growth. And we have a lot of things to discuss also in terms of whether economic growth per se and and without any caveat is a goal in itself, but just keeping like sticking with this narrative, what we see is a delink of these two processes. Because what is missing in this typical understanding is that for innovation to lead to economic growth, you need diffusion. You need you need many more to be able not only to use the technology, but also to produce associated technologies. And this is all the more true with a general purpose technology like artificial intelligence. If the producers are only a few companies, as it is the case these days, that means that even if all the companies in the world adopt the technology, that adoption will be as black boxes. They will never learn 
to produce AI by themselves, to co-produce AI with the rest. They will never understand really what they are doing. And the people working for them will never develop the capabilities of really grasping, understanding what's, un what's underlying, what nowadays for everyone is like, oh, this is like magic, sacred, or like a nightmare. But again, a lot of words related to like, this is definitely a black box. And what takes to open it is not that it's a black box because nobody understands it. It's because only a few people understand it and they work for these companies directly or indirectly. Because also it must be said that a lot of people in academia end up working for these companies implicitly. So there's, there's, there's sort of built into this... Um perhaps a sort of redefinition of what a firm does, right? What a capitalist company does, which is that it's not only just trying to claim some space of production for itself. It's that you also have these very, very large tech companies who try and grab whatever they can in society, right? That we're all kind of producing extra knowledge. The, the location of production isn't just the firm, it's actually right the way across society. And what you have with something like Google or Amazon or Microsoft or whoever is this institution which grabs as much as they can of that social production. Is that roughly where you're going with this? Absolutely. And it's also where I'm going in terms of distinguishing types of companies. We typically come from this idea of the firm as a kind of homogeneous like entity. We can think of the average firm and that really doesn't make sense. You can go to your closest baker's store and check what they do and compare it to what a company like a big pharma company, a big tech company, a big manufacturing company like Siemens and others do. And it will be quite different. So we need also to build a theory that is capable of understanding this difference. And for me, that difference comes from their capacity to not only appropriate knowledge, but also control the way knowledge is produced and use that control of production of knowledge to subordinate others. Typically, this idea of the big business innovating, and also if you think about like other ways of thinking about it, like monopoly capital authors and so on and so forth, they always think of, okay, the concentration of capital. But at the same time, what we've witnessed since the late 1970s or so is the emergence of, for instance, global value chains, the franchising model, platforms. We have a lot of startups flourishing on not only tech, but also pharma. So what's going on there? And what I see is that there are different types of firms and this intellectual monopoly is this large companies capturing more and more knowledge have the capacity to plan production processes, to control the production processes that take place in other firms. So subordination ends up being for these other firms a kind of a strategic way because they cannot compete with those that are on the top. So their best strategy, their best option is to become a subordinate company. And, and we can see the same structures, as I was saying, like if you think of Apple's global value chain with the relationship between Apple and Foxconn. And you can also see that when you look at the cloud and how big tech companies are not only providing themselves software as a service, but also a lot of developing companies that provide software as a service through these companies' marketplaces. In every case, you see the same dynamic of different firms and how some firms control spaces that are no longer the legal frontiers of the firm. I wonder if this is at least in part, a, a challenge to, to Marxism, as people often think about it. I mean, just, just when you're describing this, in, in two dimensions. One is that exploitation suddenly isn't necessarily taking place when people produce, like in a direct sense, I am producing this new good. Like we are collectively generating knowledge, which is then appropriated. So that's one part. The other bit is that the power dynamic then starts to look a bit more like you have these very big firms and they dominate not just people who work for them, but they dominate other firms as well. So in other words, the, the basic contradiction here isn't necessarily between capital and labor. It's between really big capital and other bits of capital. 
I wonder if it, does that sound does that is that a reasonable sort of claim to make out of this? So the way I see it, I see it as a hierarchical network. Ultim because the way the subordinate firms in part cope with this subordination is precisely by further worsening working conditions of those working for them. And the stratification of firms also has a kind of a reflect at the level of the stratification of workers. So it is a challenge for Marxism as much as it's a challenge for most, like I would say every economic theory that is used to think in very static ways like the firm, the capital and labor relationship, the state as homogeneous entities. And then actually what we have is a lot of heterogeneity and the existence of that heterogeneity should not scare us. The other way around, we need to understand the different ways in which exploitation takes place. It's clearly not the same thing to be working for a tech company as an AI engineer or AI scientist than working for Foxconn produce manufacturing the iPhone. And identifying this doesn't mean that we are saying, hey, no, there was no exploitation in the end. There is, but it takes place in different forms. And I think that also by identifying this difference, we can build more solidarity among the different parts of the working class, if you want to think it in those terms. I mean, that also leads into the question of them. Why Why describe this as capitalism? Uh, the, the dynamic you're talking about, I mean, it sort of looks like what we've been used to with capitalism, that profit is being produced at our firms, that sort of thing. But potentially, and I think this is where someone like uh, Durand and, and Varoufakis would come in, is that actually this is just starts to look like quite a different process. What's the merit of still calling this capitalism? I think the importance of still calling it capitalism lies ultimately in the fact that capital and labor is still crucial to understand it. The difference, and to some extent, you can also see the basis of this understanding, even in, in Marx, that's capital, is that we need to look at capital and labor, not at the individual level, not at the level of one firm exploiting the specific people that the firm was hiring, but more of a class dynamic. And you still have that class dynamic, although it's internally differentiated. And what happens also is that there are fussy frontiers. So you have the Uber driver. So in principle, this person is, is an independent entrepreneur. But it's clearly, I mean, from from a more Marxist perspective, one could say, hey, no, he is actually a super precarious worker. And, and this challenges our ways of understanding a lot of things, because if we keep on repeating, for instance, that the working class is... Uh, characterized by not owning the means of production. And then we see the Uber driver that owns the tangible means of production. We may say, we may risk concluding that, that now the workers can also own the means of production and then everything is solved. So this, this also leads us to distinguishing between types of means of production and what's becoming more and more important. And for me, again, this goes back to knowledge and to intellectual labor, if you want to think it, in, again, in, in relation to labor and the importance that intangibles are having for not only organizing society, but also for determining power relations in that society. Microdose is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com. For the full episode, head over to patreon.com slash macrodose and subscribe today.